Hi, good morning, everyone. My name's Amelia, and I'm the River Kids or Children's Program Director here at the River. So uh, can we pull out the picture? So I promise you, I know we're all wearing masks, but this is not my picture. Um, Mike Eller is scheduled to speak today, but unfortunately yesterday he hurt his back. So I hope we don't disappoint you too much, but I will be speaking today. So when I was a child, I heard a very interesting story. It's called the story of one thousand and one nights. Anyone have ever heard this story? Just a quick, okay, cool, very nice. So it's an Arabic folk story about Shariar, a king of an empire. When King Shariar discovers that his queen, his wife, is being unfaithful, he has her killed and declares that all women are the same. In his bitterness and grief, he decides to marry a succession of virgins, only to execute each one the next morning before she has the chance to dishonor him. The people are shocked by the brutality of this law and watch in horror as their king murders their daughter. Eventually, his wazir or his high-ranking advisor, whose duty is to provide the brides, cannot find any more virgins. So, Shahrazad, the highly educated, intelligent, and cultured daughter of the advisor, offers herself as the bride. On the wedding night, Shahrazad begins to tell the king a tale, but does not end it. The king, curious about how the story ends, is forced to postpone the execution. The next night, as soon as she finished the tale, she begins another one. The king, eager to hear the conclusion of that tale as well, postpones her execution once again. And this goes on for 1,001 nights, hence the name. There are a few versions on how the story ends. One version is that Shahrazad became pregnant during this time and gave birth to two princes. So the king spared her life. Another version is the king fell in love with her and eventually made her his last queen. Stories are powerful. Stories can change mind. Story can give birth to new ways of thinking and, and doing things. And in this case, story literally saves lives. There are something quite uh, amazing happening with our brains when we are listening to stories versus when we are listening to data. Researchers Greg Stevens and Uri Hassens from Princeton say that when we are listening to stories, there are two main parts of our brain that get activated. It's called the Broca area and Wernicke's area, the language processing parts. But when we are listening to, um, when we are listening to stories, it can really put your whole brain to work. So the second picture is listening to the story. The first one is listening to data, like a PowerPoint presentation with bullet points. The researchers also found 
that the brains of the person telling a story and the brain of the person listening to the story can synchronize. So if I tell you about how delicious a certain food is, both of our sensory cortex are light up. And if I tell you stories that um, involve emotion, then both of our motor cortex gets activated. When we tell stories that have really helped us, that have shaped us the way we think and the way we do lives, we can have the same effect on others too. And this reminds me of someone who loves telling stories. Then the disciples came and asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. Mysteries are not like a piece of information that you can discover quite instantly. The more you sit with it, the more you linger with it, the more you discover. Mysteries are not for lazy ears. So when you're distracted or you're unwilling or just not in the space to embrace it, you are likely to forget whatever little information that you did hear. The discovering process takes time, kind of like a growing seed. Someone recently asked me, what is my relationship with the Bible? I wish I could give a short, easy answer. Good. I mean, after all, that's what I do, right? I read and tell stories to the children. But the truth is, my relationship with the Bible has been a complicated journey. And it is ongoing. And there are two reasons for this for me. First one the Bible was presented to me as a holy book, a sacred text that you should believe in if you call yourself a Christian. Growing up as a minority in Indonesia, which is a large Muslim-majority country, my religion became one of the most uh, distinguishable things about me. Faith and religion is more than just a private matter in Indonesia. It's a civil one which means it is included in your national ID card, which you need to carry everywhere you go. It is included in your driver's license. It is to be included in your uh, resume and job application. So owning my identity means defending my religion and my beliefs about the Bible. So, as much as I enjoyed the Bible stories as a child, they came with a burden to defend them, 
to be certain about its truth. And as you can guess, this could be very problematic. Another problem for me that the God of the Bible seems to have made some very troubling decisions. You can find quite a few examples, but here's one from the book of Joshua. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. This is not less scary than the story I told you in the beginning, right? Did God really command that? Did Joshua hear wrong? Could the text have been edited or corrupted in any way? Or maybe I'm the one being careless. Is there really another way to read this text that does not sound like a genocide? Or is it possible that I have expectations about the Bible that the Bible never claims to be? Some of you here probably share similar confusion and feelings about the Bible. Well, it was not until much later on that I found God. And God was outside the Bible. And God was very much alive outside the Bible. When I began to notice God's movements in my life and others, I realized that we all have stories, and our stories, they're not much different from those in the Bible. Which makes me wonder if the Bible stories reveal more about us than it is about God that they are about what we think of God, what we perceive to be God's will, God's plan, or command, or how we feel and relate to God. Peter Enns, a theologian and author of the book, The Bible Tells Me So, wrote, God is happy enough to let his children tell stories about him. I do believe that God's voice can be found all over the Bible. But not always in the way that Joshua or Moses or anyone said that it was. That God told them so. Finding God's voice in the Bible is not as easy as looking for the word God said. Just like in real life, God's voice is really loud. It is often silent or not easily recognizable. For example, I find God's voice in creation, in the sound of the wind or the birds, I believe God's voice was also in the desert. 
emboldening Moses to go back to Egypt to confront the Pharaoh and bring out his people out of slavery. I believe that God's voice is with me and with you. Jesus said earlier, the mystery requires more than eyes to see them and more than ears to hear them. So why do we still bother with the Bible then? If it's not the word of God in the way that we used to believe it, if God can be found inside and outside the Bible, inside and outside the church, why are we here? Well, the Bible has been around for so long, so it's likely not going away. It has been sold over 5 billion copies. It is the world's best-selling book and most widely distributed. This is a very impressive and fascinating fact. But this also means that the Bible gives us a large perspective, a time span of over 3,000 years of human history. It is like a stage where stories after stories keep unfolding for us to explore. I personally cannot imagine anything comparable like it. The Bible is a gift. Biblical scholars call these stories as myths, not because they are untrue or inaccurate, and they, they could possibly be, but because the authors tell you things that really matter to them. The Bible is relevant because it reveals a lot about us, about life, about the world, about how humanity have dealt with oppressions and hopefulness, with abandonment, fear, betrayals, with victories and defeats, with abundance and famine throughout history. Progressive Christians often get slammed for not taking the Bible seriously. But I think this is a careless assumption the Bible is still pretty central to our study and exploration about faith for both the adults and the children. However, instead of taking the Bible as a manual book, as a resource for all answers to life, we see them as narratives, as stories, and we have established that stories are inviting, powerful, and life-changing. We don't look to the Bible to find God. We look through the Bible. Our children, especially those who grow up in our church, possibly have different set of contacts about the Bible than their parents. They likely do not expect us to make any kind of defenses or apologetical reasonings about the Bible. In fact, they have a lot of distractions and attractions 
around them. So the real challenge for us as grown-ups and leaders is how do we show them that the Bible is relevant? How is this ancient text can be helpful for life now? Can we explore this together? So my first practical suggestion for today is let go of your expectations and burden about the Bible. Come as yourself. At River Kids and Youth, our storytellers and leaders are like tour guide who invites the children to explore the stories and the characters. We want the children to engage the story as their honest self. That means to have doubts and ask questions, to wrestle and to cherish it. There's no expectation for them to go home believing in, in some things or be excellent at memorizing verses. We want the mystery to linger with them and hopefully take roots. Like a seed that was sown on good soil, it will bear fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And this leads to my second suggestion. Let the stories linger and walk with them. Jesus did not pick biblical scholars for his disciples. They did not have the training or the credentials. They were fishermen. The mysteries were made known to them because they said yes to Jesus. They did not just hear and leave. They embraced his invitation and they lingered. They asked questions. They even argued and wrestled. They probably couldn't even understand the answers that Jesus gave them. But they continued to walk and live with Jesus. They walk and live with the Word of God. My last suggestion is stay engaged with the community. I have found it very helpful to have people uh, to explore the Bible with. And that's why we do church. I have really enjoyed reading and telling stories to, the, to your children. But if you want to explore the Bible stories in new ways, probably in ways that you have never done before, I want to invite you to sit in with us with river kids or youth. It is my hope that those who have complicated relationship with the Bible, like I did, uh, will give the Bible another chance. And hopefully will come to enjoy and cherish the Bible again. Thank you.